Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you fill us afresh with your Spirit, Father, and Give us all receptive and open hearts to whatever you desire to share with us from your word and also to be open to whatever you desire to do in us and through us uh, via your Holy Spirit. So may you equip us, may you teach us, may you encourage us, convict us if necessary, but help us, we pray, to be more like Jesus. And I do pray uh, for the gift of teaching and I pray that you will be glorified. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 So once again, Genesis 16, and the title of the study is The God Who Sees. The God Who Sees. And so in Genesis chapter 15, which was in the previous study, uh, God had performed a covenant-cutting ceremony with Abram or Abraham in which he was the only one who passed through uh, the sacrificial animals. And so when God the Father did that, when God did that, this demonstrated um, that what God promised Abram was sure to be fulfilled. In other words, it was an unconditional promise uh, that he gave to Abram. And so in that covenant-cutting ceremony, God had reiterated his promise to Abram's uh, descendants that they would inherit the land Canaan, which we call the promised land, the land that they're in at this time we call Israel. And so uh, because God uh, made this promise, God does not lie and it's an unconditional promise. Because of that, Abram need not worry about dying before having an offspring. He also need not worry about his uncountable number of descendants who would be inheriting Canaan. And so, of course, he's an elderly man at this point. And so uh, these were some things that if his uh, flesh were to take over, he would worry about because certain things have not happened. And so in this study in Genesis 16, we're going to see how Abram's story continues to unfold. And so in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant or slave whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid or slave and perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Uh, Another version of the scriptures say, uh, perhaps through her I can build a family. And it says here that Abram heeded, he listened to the voice of Sarai. So at this point, Sarai was 75 years old and Abram was 85 years old. But still, there was no baby. Yet and still, there was no baby. Even though God made these promises about a multitude of descendants, wouldn't be able to count them and and all these things. See, because Sarah was not able to have any children at this point, she shared a quote-unquote bright idea with her husband, Abram. 
And that idea of hers was for him to have sexual relations with Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant. And so at that time, taking a second wife or a concubine was actually common for a childless couple. See, a female servant could become a secondary wife to their master for the purpose of bearing children. And according to the custom at that time, the child will be considered um, to be the child of Abram and Sarai and not the child of Abram and Hagar, the maidservant. So that was according to the culture at that time, just to be clear. But some would question, where did Hagar, Sarai's Egyptian maidservant, come from? Where did, where she, where did she come from? Of course, we know from Egypt, but when was she acquired? And so we believe that according to Genesis chapter 12, verse 16, that this tells us when Hagar became a part of their group. See, in Genesis 12, 16, it says that he, speaking of Pharaoh, he treated Abram well for her sake, for Sarai's sake. And it says that he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. So it was most likely in Genesis chapter 12 where Hagar became a part of their group. But as we see here in the scriptures, and as we continue on with the story, we see that Abram listened to his wife, that he listened to her plan, her idea. And in this, he was mimicking Adam. He was listening or he gave in to his wife's bad suggestion. Just like Adam's wife Eve gave the fruit or offered the fruit to Adam and Adam partook of it. Even though he knew the commandment of God, Abram did the same thing here with his wife Sarai. But instead, Abram should have stepped up as the leader of his household based upon God's word to him. And and so the point of this, of what I'm making, is that wives do not always give bad suggestions. That's not the point. So don't pack up your purses, zip up your Bibles, and leave, women and wife. Don't throw anything at me. That's not the point. The point is not that wives always give bad suggestions. The point is that husbands need to step up and be the leaders that God called us to be. So that's the point that we're making right here in these first two verses. And so as husbands, how are we doing in leading our families? And so that's something for us to think about. That's something for us to pray about and make the necessary adjustments. And as husbands, are we using the Bible as the standard by which we lead? Not the culture, but and not our wives, not anybody else in our families, not our friends, our co-workers, but are we using the Bible as the standard by which we lead? And are we entertaining non-biblical teachings or suggestions? You see, the enemy knows that, that God had, has appointed the, the men, the husbands, to, to be the leaders in the home, the spiritual leaders of the home. And so, of course, he's going to want to, to take out the men. And so as believers, as husbands in particular in this, in this situation here, 
We need to make sure that we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. And so like Abram, now I'm speaking to all Christians at this point. Like Abram, Christians could also be influenced by someone who gives them uh, ideas or uh, maybe certain permissions or commandments that do not line up with the word of God. We often see that with maybe some friends we grew up with, maybe some family members or, or even the government might, might give certain permissions or ideas or commandments that do not line up with the word of God. But as believers, we need to test those ideas. We need to test those permissions and those commandments against the word of God. Test those laws against the word of God. You always honor God above all. Verses 3 and 4, it says, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife or secondary wife or concubine. And after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan, so uh, there you go, that 10 years went by. So that's where we get the ages of Abram and uh, Sarai. Because remember, I mentioned that she was 75 and he was 85 at this point. Those 10 years had passed. And so it says in verse 4 that he went into Hagar. She conceived. She got pregnant. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. In other words, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And the word contempt is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration that that person is worthless or deserving scorn. And so in other words, and similarly in verse 5, when it says her mistress became despised in her eyes, it means that her mistress was dishonorable in her eyes. Oh, she became proud now because she was able to conceive and Sarai didn't. And so she was being disrespectful to Sarai in this situation. Hagar saw her as insignificant because of her infertility, because she could not get pregnant at this point. And guess what? There's other examples in the Bible where these type of marriage arrangements caused issues. Where there weren't just only the, the man and the woman, one man, one woman in the marriage, but, but now you have multiple wives and concubines. You, you see other situations where it caused problems with, for example, fast forward, Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Rachel, by the way, was the one Jacob really loved, but she was barren. She could not get pregnant for a while, and Leah was having all the babies. And then in 1 Samuel, you had Elkanah and his two wives. His two wives were Hannah and Peninnah. Hannah, of course, would go on to be the mother of Samuel, the prophet. But at one point, Hannah was childless, and Peninnah, she was having the children. And of course, there was friction there. And so you see these non-biblical type of marriage arrangement causing issues. And so once again, by way of reminder, this marriage arrangement, that is a female servant becoming a secondary wife to their master for the purpose of bearing children, that was according to the legal customs as witnessed in the legal codes and the marriage contracts at that time. So in that culture, 
not according to the word of God. We're going to separate the two. And so when the Bible includes information like this and people are looking at this, we're like, well, Abraham had sexual relations with another woman and he had a concubine. That means that we as men could have more than one wife. Well, we need to make sure that we understand the difference between what is descriptive in the Bible versus what is prescriptive. What is prescriptive in the scriptures is that for one man, one biological man and one biological woman to be married for a lifetime or until death separates them. That is God's design. That is prescriptive, but descriptive is just describing what is happening. It's not for us to copy. And so we are seeing a situation that is descriptive, and we know that they were doing something according to what was legal in their culture. But for us as believers and human beings, we will be wise to stick with the biblical definition and design for marriage no matter what the culture says. Because God is the creator of marriage. God is all-knowing. God is wise. He knows what harms us, and he also knows what is best for us. And so he sets these boundaries. And it's when people try to overstep their boundaries of the word of God, that's where people get into a mess. And by the way, there is no way a marriage will be all that it could be if it is outside of the will of God. You see, Abram and Sarai, they've been, they've been waiting these past 10 years to have a child. So if you think about it, without a descendant, then how was this great nation going to come from Abram? In fact, how would his offspring be innumerable where you can't count them? How would that happen? You see, they, just, they decided to stop waiting. And they decided to intervene and they, they, they tried to give God a helping hand in this situation. You know, I wish that Abram and Sarai would, I wish they were around to answer the following question. And that question would be, was, was giving up on waiting for God's plan to unfold after 10 years worth the headache? Was giving up on God's plan worth the headache. Of course, we would know the answer that they would give if they were here. It's an obvious answer, a rhetorical question that I'm putting out there. But, but the message is for us that when we give up on waiting for God's plan to unfold his way, whenever we do that, no matter if it's five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, uh, 50 years later, whenever we give up on God's plan, it's always too soon. And it was definitely too soon for them. And they just made a mess out of this situation. And so when, when we as people, when we stop waiting for God's plan and we try to help God to move things along, What's happening is we're settling for less than God's best. And then we bring more headaches and we bring more heartaches into our lives, into our situation, into our marriages. Whenever we stop waiting for God and we just put our hands in it. In verse 5, Genesis chapter 16, it says, And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. 
I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised. In other words, she began to look down on me with disrespect when she saw that she got pregnant and I still wasn't pregnant. And then she tells her husband, the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, she was saying, let the Lord decide who is right, you or or me. You see, she was telling Abram that, Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. Because Hagar has gone off the rails and being disrespectful, she's proud, she's looking down on me because I'm, in, uh, I'm not fertile at this point. It's, it's your fault. It's your fault that I'm going through this anguish, through this suffering. She puts the blame on him. And so we've seen the blame game, by the way, being played out even earlier in the scriptures. We see that with Adam and Eve. After they sinned in the Garden of Eden, we, we see that Adam blamed the woman, the woman that you gave me, God. And so he blamed the woman for his sin, but at the same time, indirectly blamed God. And then Eve blamed the serpent, speaking of the devil. See, in this situation here, Abram carried out the act. But of course, Sarah or Sarai proposed the plan. And so really, technically, both are responsible for this situation. But we need to ask ourselves, are we always looking? Are we like this? Are we always looking for someone else to blame when something goes wrong? When something doesn't work out the way we want it to? Are are we always looking for someone else to blame? Is it always someone else's fault? Are we willing to look in the mirror and take responsibility for the situation going the way it is? Are we willing to look in the mirror and take responsibility for our own part in the way the situation played out? In fact, it takes humility to look in the mirror and to admit fault. That is humility. I'm telling you, one of the, one of the prayers that you can do that would that would change you, that would definitely help you to be more Christ-like and help you to be more humble. That if you get into a a disagreement with someone, I I would say this, to pray for that person, obviously, whether it's your spouse or uh, maybe it's another relative or a coworker or whatever, teammate, if you play sports, pray for that person you have that disagreement with, a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, But I would say this, this is, uh, I would say, a life-changing prayer request. As you're praying for that person, don't, don't pray for that person. Lord, show them what they did wrong. But, but, but this would be life-changing. Yes, pray for that person. But pray this in regard to yourself. Lord, if I've done anything wrong in this situation, show me. Oh, that is so humbling. That is a great prayer. That is a life-changing prayer. In fact, I, I think it, uh, you know, if the Lord shows you that, yeah, you played a part in this, you, you need to ask for forgiveness as well. If the Lord shows you that, I think even in the future, that might help you to have more mercy and grace on other people when they make mistakes. 
In verse 6, it says, so Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, with Hagar, she fled from her presence. And so obviously now Sarai was upset with Hagar because of the disrespect she received from her. Uh, But also part of Sarai's anger could be, be obviously because she couldn't bear any of her own children with her own husband. But get this, I would even suggest that she was even indirectly upset with God because in verse two, it says, as she's talking to her husband, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. So not only is she uh, upset with the with the immediate situation with Hagar looking down on her, but now with pro- probably, you know, the fact she can't have children, probably God. And then at the same time, she could be mad at herself for even making that silly suggestion that her husband have sexual relations with Hagar. So all of these things could be mixed up in there, be mixed up in the fact that Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. But personally, I think it's beneficial, a good thing to just step back and evaluate why we are really upset and also with whom we are really upset. Because what I perceive is that sometimes when people go overboard in their reaction, what I perceive is that when when they are harsh or uh, do something that Sarai did just treat somebody harshly or just go overboard in their reaction. I would say it's because there's a, maybe a larger issue that's going on behind the scenes. For example, you may have that person who may be harsh and just cursing out somebody who works in the fast food industry because they got an order wrong. Something simple. I asked for large fries and you gave me small. And it seems like such a trivial thing, a small matter, but, but this person's just overreacting. They're being super harsh against this person. But, but could it be that the larger issue for that person, could it be that maybe they got laid off that day? Maybe they got fired that day. Maybe they have some issues going on at home. And so that, this is what I perceive that, that, that sometimes it's usually something else bigger behind the scenes. And I can kind of see this, of course, with Sarai. But I will say this about ourselves, that if we were able to pinpoint exactly why we are, uh, we are upset and with whom we are really upset because sometimes we could be mad at ourselves for doing something silly and then we take it out on somebody else. But if we pinpoint that, I, I, I believe that it would help us to be more specific in our prayer requests and it will also help us to deal with the situation more appropriately. See this. Some folks mistreating maybe their children or mistreating their spouse because they are upset with their parents and never forgave their parents. You see that? So, so there's this saying, and I didn't create it, of course, and I don't know who to give credit to, but, but the saying goes that hurt people hurt people. And so this is what you're seeing with Sarai and, oh, she's hurting. I can't have any children. You know, God doesn't, he hasn't opened up my womb. And then on top of that, I made this silly decision. And then to top it all off, this woman is looking down on me because she got pregnant by my husband and I didn't. 
verses 7 and 8. Now the angel of the Lord found her by spring of water in the wilderness, uh, by the spring on the way to Shur. And Shur is a place that is southwest of Israel on the eastern border or within the border of Egypt. And so that's where Shur is. And so um, she was on her way there. And, and it says in verse 8, Genesis 16, and he said, the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, Sarah's maid or servant. So notice that the angel of the Lord did not recognize her as the wife of Abram. He still recognized her as Sarah's maid. And so non-biblical marriage, men with men, women with men, God doesn't recognize that. It's not biblical. It's not according to his word. This arrangement, he didn't, you know, God, he still calls her the maid. He says, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And so here, um, just as in the previous lesson, I had the first mention alert. That, that means that I was going to bring to your attention things that appear for the first time in the Bible. And so here, this is the first time that we see that the angel of the Lord uh, appears in the Old Testament. This, and this would be an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So because, before he became the baby lying in the manger in Bethlehem, here is the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ always existed was with God, was God all, was with God and all that stuff. It tells us in John chapter one, where it tells us that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So he always existed. He's everlasting. But here we have a pre-incarnate Jesus, the angel of the Lord. And so it depends on the context of when we say, okay, this is what we call a Christophany. Some people say theophany some type of physical manifestation of the Lord. And so here I call it Christophany because I believe it's the pre-incarnate Jesus. And, and we can infer that this is the pre-incarnate Christ based on what, number one, he said he will do. So he said, I will do this. And you're going to see that in verse 10. Because in verse 10, he says that, he says, I will multiply your descendants and then also in verse, th- verse 13, it says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. The name of the Lord who spoke to her. So from verses 10 and then 13, we can gather, okay, this is more than just a regular messenger or angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. So, you, you know, in your Bibles, you might have a capital A there at the beginning of the word angel. So not only that, how... Will we see this as Christ? Well, well first of all, um, it, the Bible is clear that no one can see the Lord. Can see, nobody has seen the Father in all his glory face to face on this side of eternity. For example, in Exodus 33, verse 20, it says, But he said, and this is the Lord speaking to Moses, who had, who had asked to see the manifested glory of God. So God is talking to Moses here in Exodus 33, 20, and he says, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So no man can look at God's face and can look at God's face in all of his glory and live on this side of eternity. Not only that, but we, then we have 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. 
It says, who alone has immortality, obviously speaking about the Lord, dwelling in in unapproachable light. So God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And then John chapter one, verse 18, this is Jesus himself speaking. He says, no one has seen God at any time. So who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the father. So no one has seen the father at any time. The only begotten son, in other words, the only unique son who is in the bosom of the father. So he's at the father's side or close to the heart of the father. He has declared, he has revealed the father or made the father known. So if you want to know what the invisible father or God looks like, then you look at Jesus. And so that's why I believe and many Bible commentators believe that this angel of the Lord here who is visible is speaking of a pre-incarnate Jesus and what we call a Christophany. However, there is good news because according to Revelation 22, 4, for those of you who want to see the Lord's face, Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 tells us that in eternity, in the eternal state. So, so now we're past the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ that you see in Revelation 20. And now you're in Revelations chapter uh, 21 and 22. That is the eternal order, the eternal state, how things are going to be for eternity there in our glorified bodies. The scriptures tell us that we will see his face. And so it couldn't happen. It says here, according to Exodus thirty-three twenty, on this side of eternity, because we wouldn't be able to take it, we wouldn't be able to live. And that's why Moses was only able to see the afterglow of God. And God set it up that way. And so this is, I believe, just to summarize this point, this angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus before he took upon that body. You see, this angel of the Lord, he, he found Hagar, this maidservant, by the spring on the way to Shur. So Hagar was most likely on her way back to Egypt. And so the Lord asked her, the angel of the Lord asked her where she came from and where she was going in verse 8. See, it wasn't that God didn't know, that the Lord didn't know where she was going and where she was from. He already knows that. And it's the same thing with us. He, he already knows our story, but he gives us an opportunity to share what's happening. And many times we share what's happening with him in our prayers, even though he knows already. We say prayers like, Lord, I'm going through this and that, or I'm feeling this pain here and there, Lord. And so we share all these details with the Lord. He knows already. And so I'm not saying stop doing that. That's not the point of this. But I'm saying we do this even now. We share all these things with the Lord that he already knows before we even get to our requests. Even confessing our sins, he, he knows that we sin, but, but it's good for us to confess it because when we confess, confess, by the way, means that we say the same thing as the Lord. And so we are acknowledging our sins. And so God already knows, but he wants to bring it out of Hagar. He already knows our situation even before we come to him in prayer, but he wants to bring it out of us. Verse 9, it says, the angel of the Lord said to her, said to Hagar, return to your mistress, Sarai. Submit yourself under her hand or under her authority. 
And so the angel of the Lord, he knew that it would be worse for her to be out on her own than it would be if she were to return to Sarai. See, Hagar is out in the desert and she's pregnant. And so he's like, go back to your mistress, submit to her authority. And so now if the Lord is telling her to return, what's implied here is that he's going to watch over her, over Hagar. And even some of us have been in this position in which we thought that it will be better off by running away or by leaving home or running away from whatever the situation is. We, we thought it would be better from, you know, just getting away from that challenge. Some people think it's better. And speaking of local fellowships, and I know many of us have, you know, this may not be our first church home, but, but maybe there's somebody who ran away from a situation at their previous local church or fellowship. Just thinking that things would be easier. See, but God knows. God knows where it is better for us. And, and he knows that here about Hagar. He's not trying to subject her to abuse. But, but he knows that it's worse out there for her. And like I said, indirectly or by implication, he's saying, I, I, I got you. I'm. I'll watch over you. In verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they should not be counted for multitude. So it's going to be so, so many of your descendants, Hagar, that they won't be able to be counted. Just so many of them. And so one thing that, that may be evident and clear to you that maybe I haven't pointed out yet, but I will here. One thing I want to point out is that the Lord is actually, she's talking to a Gentile. He's talking to a Gentile. She, she's an Egyptian and he's making this awesome promise to her. See, that, that God is going to take a mess of her, of, her, of her situation. And, and then he actually promised a blessing of a multitude of descendants for her. And many of us can see the same thing in our lives, how, how God has this way. The Lord has this, this way of making the most out of our mess. And so the point is, it's not that we should intentionally get into a messy situation or just make a mess of things so that God could bless us. That's not the point of this. The point is not that there are not going to be any consequences due to the mess that we create, because, of course, there's consequences so we want to get those things off the table. That's not what we're saying. But the point is, is that many of us think that God is done with us or, or that there is no recovery for us when we make poor decisions, when we make decisions because we're trying to help God, when we make decisions because we're not trusting in the Lord. And we think, oh, I messed up. God is done with me yet. I cannot recover from this. But just like he did with Hagar, or promised Hagar, you see, in his mercy, he forgives. And in his grace, he can restore what was lost and even use us to bless others as we share with them what we have learned from our sins, what we have learned from our past mistakes. That's the type of God we serve. 
But the angel of the Lord didn't stop speaking because in verses 11 and 12, it says that, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael or God hears. His name means God hears because the Lord has heard your affliction or your cries of affliction. He's heard, he heard your misery. He heard your pain, your trials, your, your trouble. But he says about Ishmael, he shall be a wild man. In fact, in, in a couple of versions, it, it mentions that or interprets it as that he will be like a wild donkey. In other words, he will be a wild donkey of a man is what it's saying. And his hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. You see, Ishmael's name, God hears. That will serve as a reminder to Hagar that the Lord has heard and will continue to hear her cries of affliction. And it's a name, Ishmael, is a name that the Lord gave to her baby while the baby was still in the womb. And so that name, Ishmael, God hears, is a, is a good reminder for us as well. That, that God hears the cries of his children. Those of us who repented and put our trust in Jesus for salvation, we are his children, the scriptures tell us in the gospel according to John However, what we have here in regard to Hagar, we see, that, we see that the Lord informs Hagar that, yes, his name means God hears, but he's going to be a, a wild man. He's going to be in conflict with everyone. In fact, Ish, Ishmael would go on to become the ancestor of the Arab people. And so even today, there is still conflict between the Jews and the Arabs. And the sad part about this is that they have a common father or forefather in Abraham. But it's that conflict. God prophesied of this. We see it here in Genesis 16 as the angel of the Lord shared this information with Hagar, the Egyptian maid servant of Sarai. And so Ishmael, he is the son of the flesh. And we call him the son of the flesh because he is the product of a fleshly decision. Which means that he was not the son that God had promised to Abram. And so he was, I mean, what what happened here is just something where people got their hands into it and made their own plans trying to help God out. And so, by the way, the son of promise, and we're not there yet, but the son of promise or the one that God promised to Abram and Sarai would be Isaac, who we'll see pretty soon, Lord willing. But, but Ishmael, he was not the son of promise, he was the son of the flesh. And unfortunately for many of us, we have a bunch of Ishmaels running around. We have a lot of fleshly decisions and consequences that we live with. 
Maybe we, we, we didn't consult the Lord, but we, we were operating out of our fleshly desires when we made a certain purchase or when we, when we got together with a certain mate or even when we made a certain move. It was, a, it was an Ishmael type of decision, a fleshly decision. In other words, with God not involved. See, there are many things that sound good on the surface, but, but don't do it. Or it may look good with, on somebody else and with somebody else and in somebody else's situation, but if God is not in it, don't do it. In other words, don't try to help God as if God cannot fulfill his promises or if God was not all-powerful. He doesn't need our help. Verse 13, it says, then, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, and she's speaking to herself, have I also here seen him who sees me? And, and some would translate that as, um, have I also seen the back of him who sees me? And, and so in Hebrew, the God who sees is El Roi. And, and according to the Amplified Bible uh, footnote, uh, you are the God who sees means that God um, never sleeps, never, he sees, he is aware, he is the great omnipresent God. He is the God who sees, El Roi. And so in verses 14 through 16 in Genesis 16, it says, Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi, the well of the one who lives and sees me. And he says, Observe, it is between Kadesh which is also known as Kadesh Barnea and Northeast Sinai and Bered. So it's between there. So and Bered, by the way, is a location. We don't, know, we don't know where it is. But in verse 15, it says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram, in verse 16, was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You see, from this study, what I want to focus on is the fact that God sees, that, that God sees all things. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. In other words, uh, you know, in the New Living Translation, for example, it says that God examines every path he takes. And so all of our ways are before the Lord, before his eyes. In Proverbs 15, verse 3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He is El Roi, the, the God who sees. See, from the scriptures here and uh, from the Proverbs that, that we just read, we know that God sees the ways of man, all the ways of man. We know that God examines all of our paths. The God who sees, sees all the evil that has taken place on the earth. The God who sees, even see the good that, that some people do. El Roi, he, he sees when a person is born. He also sees when, when people die. This is the God of the Bible. 
And even the God of the Bible, El Roi, the God who sees, he, he sees even what is in the person's heart. We even see that in the situation where Samuel was sent to go anoint a new king. And God, of course, had David in mind. But David had a brother who looked kingly, but God said, no, that, that's not the one. I've, I've refused him. He's not the one. Then he proceeds to tell Samuel, you see, God, God says, you see, man looks at the outer appearance, but, but, I, but I look at the heart. So God, he doesn't just look at the outward, but, but he knows what is beneath. He knows what is in the part, person's heart. He knows, in other words, the, uh, the heart condition of a person, the, whether the heart condition of a person is good or evil. So in other words, God does not have to wait for the fruit of a false prophet. As it tells us in Matthew 7, you'll know them by their fruits. He doesn't have to look at the fruit or wait for the fruit of anybody, of any individual in order to determine if they are a good tree or a bad tree. That's because the God who sees, he, he can see beneath, he sees the heart. And not only can he see actions, but, but yes, he can see the motives. Why? A person did something. Why a person is saying something? He, he sees the motives. You see, the God who sees, he can see the ups in our lives. He can also see the down, the down moments or, or the lowest moments in our lives. He's the God who sees. And, and obviously, God knows our physical location, for, for example, and, and that's without saying, but, but just to point it out in the scriptures, in Genesis uh, chapter 16, verse 8, you see that, that he found, or verse 7, you see that the angel of the Lord found her. He found out where she was. He knows her physical location. And so, yes, he knows our physical location, but let's bounce off of there. Let's, let's use that physical location as a springboard. And let's say this, that, that not only does God know our physical location, but he knows our spiritual location. And so we must ask ourselves tonight, where, where are we? Because God sees, he, he knows who we are spiritually. He knows if we're hot. He knows if we're cold. He knows if we're lukewarm. So where is our spiritual location? Are we over the fence or are we straddling the fence? Are you for him or are you against him? He, he knows our spiritual location just as clear as he knows our physical location, like he knew the physical location of Hagar and was able to meet her. You see, the same God who saw Hagar in her distress, th this is the same God who sees us in our moments of sorrow. In our moments of distress, in our, he sees us in our moments of pain and suffering as well. That same God who sees her when she was suffering, when she was trying to run away because of this harsh treatment. Oh, he sees us as well. You see, the time in which we are alive is a time when there's so much distress and it's a time where there's so much confusion. It's a time when there's so much pain. Not just physically, physically, but mentally and emotionally, people are experiencing pain and 
just anguish, even financially in some cases. And so if you're not having a moment of suffering or distress at this time, then and I would encourage you to praise God. But, but I would just say store up the main point of this message for a rainy day that, that, hey, even though I'm going through this, God sees. See, no matter what we're going through, no matter with whom we're going through it, God sees. You see, God sees the heartache that we experience from broken relationships with maybe a family member you've been close with for so long. Maybe a parent you, you maybe didn't have the closest of relationship with. He, he sees that heartache. God also sees the mistreatments that you've experienced. He, he also sees the verbal abuse that you've been taking and you've been, you've been keeping quiet about it. You, you haven't, you haven't um, abused them verbally, but you've just been taking it. You've just been being humble in a situation. You've been praying about it. You've been loving on that person. You've been praying for those people who abuse you, who mistreat you, who verbally abuse you, who look down upon you. You've just been taking it and, and praying. You maybe even had a conversation with them, a civil one, by the way, but but God even sees that and he sees all of your experiences. He sees when you have been lied on on the job because they hate the fact that you honor God. They hate the fact that you are a Christian and you don't stand for what the culture stand for. God sees that when you are honoring him in all of your settings. He, He sees that when you are being light and salt in your community or even when you go to a family gathering and everybody else is smoking and drinking. And when I say smoking, I'm not just talking about cigarettes. If you know what I mean, some folks are smoking other things, but you are staying away from it. You're praying with them. You're even sharing the gospel at these family gatherings. God sees that you are still honoring him. Even in those moments, he sees when you've been cheated on. He sees when you have received that diagnosis from the doctor and you think that nobody else will understand what you're going through, but God sees that. But, but here's the thing. Not only does God see, but he also does something about it, just like he did in Hagar's situation. Because the scriptures tell us in our lesson that, that he saw Hagar. He, and it says that, that he found her and he met her. You see, God doesn't just see us, but he'll meet us where we are just like he did with Hagar. But not only that, he, he directed Hagar. And, and like I said, not only does he see you, but, but he will also direct us as he directed her in her situation. Hey, go back. Oh, he'll direct us. Even in our time of distress, we're talking about the God who sees also being a God who acts. But here's the final point as the worship team comes comes up to the stage. But also the fact that with him being the God who sees, this is the same God who would also encourage us and assure us. In other words, give confidence to us, even in our time of distress. As he gave some assurance to Hagar about her descendants being innumerable. Oh, God will meet us. He will direct us as well. The God who sees will also encourage us. So I just want to leave you with this, that whatever you're going through won't be wasted. Because the God who sees also has a plan. Amen.
Father God, we thank you that you are the God who sees not just what we do in the open, but what we do in behind closed doors. Lord, you see our thoughts, you, you see our hearts. Lord, and you, you step in and you help us, you rescue us, you heal us. We thank you, Lord. And so, Father God, I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ tonight will find encouragement in the fact that you are a God who sees. You are El Roe, the one who sees us, the one who knows all things, the one who is always present. And so be the encouragement for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And if there's anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with you, we pray, Lord, for those spiritual blinders to be lifted. So, Father, may you, according to your grace, your mercy and will, so we ask your blessings upon us. We ask for your healing upon us, whether it be physical or emotional, mental, anguish, Lord. If there is demonic oppression, I pray that you would lift it in the name of Jesus. Lord, if there's any struggle with sin, I pray that you would help them to overcome it. And may you equip us, Lord, to do your will. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're able to stand, please stand. just want to thank you for coming out. May God bless you. May God keep you. May God use you in a mighty way. As always, we love you. God bless. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.